Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everybody to episode five of True Blue True Crime. It's great to be back and with me as per usual, my wonderful co-host Chloe. Hello, episode five. It feels like it's just a thing now that happens only not even a month or just over a month in. It's exciting. It's gone really fast. It has. Yeah, we're churning through the cases, churn through our backlog of yeah. cases. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to keep the, uh, the output up. Some late nights ahead. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so we're back on Wednesday night as well. Uh, that's when we normally record. We recorded Friday last week and I think we both overestimated how much energy we have in our old age, I'm going to say, that we yeah, we did not cope. <laughs> it felt like that. It was it was tough getting <laughs> it was, towards the end of the night. Yeah, <laughs> It was really rough. We would really spent everything that we had, but hopefully we brought it together long enough to, I think it was a good episode last week. Yeah, absolutely. I Enjoyed it. Well, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word because they're always pretty heinous, the mm. cases, and this week being no exception. But, uh, yeah, how was your weekend? Because you went to your gluten-free brewery. Yeah, if anyone's hanging out to know, it was so good. It was delicious. I hardly remember what beer tastes like. It's been so long since I had one. But I went with a beer lover and he said it was really good. So I feel like that's a good recommendation. Um it took me a while. I got a tasting paddle and I had to stare at it for a while before I got the courage to drink it just because it didn't feel right. Um, their IPA specifically was very good. Um, and it's called Two Bays Brewery if anyone um, who has a sensitive stomach wants to go and pay it a visit. Excellent. Sounds lovely. It was I very might go good. there myself. Yeah. yeah. Podcast trip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Chloe, before we get into things, let's do a couple of quick notes about the show. True Blue, True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly basis. And you can support the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is super easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon premium content, access to Q&As, behind-the-scenes material, blooper reels, uh, and we'll also tease the next show we're going to do at the end of our Patreon episodes too, and you'll get 10% off in our merch store when we get that up and running. Our financial supporters on that front are really paying for the content we produce, um, which is a bit of work, so we really appreciate that support, and uh, we love to be able to show you guys a bit of an audio pat on the back with the uh, Patreon episodes. And we have a new supporter this week, so we'd love to give a shout-out. Welcome to Claire Jeans. Um, We're happy to have you and we hope you're enjoying the content that we've put on there so far. Thanks, Claire. We understand that not everyone can do that and that's fine. We appreciate you checking out the regular episodes. If you want to support the show, you can do that in a few other ways. You can tell your friends and work colleagues. You can uh, spread the love on Facebook and Instagram. You can even share the show in some forums and things like that if you think you might know some uh, other people who would like it. And if you're up for it, please give us a five-star rating and write us a review on iTunes or whatever app you use. We get them and we will read out the five-star reviews at the end of each episode. 
Chloe, before we get into the episode today, we'd just like to advise that this episode contains graphic descriptions of violent sexual assault, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care and to look after themselves. The case we're discussing today, Chloe, is utterly disturbing to its very core. It's a sadistic tale of the criminal escalation of a group of inner suburban boys in the lead-up to the Olympic Games in the year 2000 in Sydney. A racially motivated series of attacks against Australian women, led from the front by a psychopathic commander and coordinated in such vile and calculated manner that the crimes would leave victims, their families, the public and even seasoned police investigators sick to their stomachs. The mere thought of what these women endured made everybody ask themselves, were there really monsters like this roaming our streets? stalking their prey, and in packs of a dozen or more. Early 2003, Goulburn Supermax Prison, New South Wales. Guards discover a series of disturbing, hand-drawn pictures in the cell of a notorious prisoner. In one, a young woman is on the ground, clearly shot by a man in a military uniform. He was holding a smoking gun, a speech bubble coming from his mouth reading, You slut. Cartridges littered the floor around the woman's body, and a second man was urinating in her mouth and saying, Drink up, baby. A third man was defecating on her face. A second series of drawings, almost like a comic strip, showed a woman noticing a drink on a table and saying, Yay, Bill left me a drink. Thanks, babe. Then she picked up the drink in the next picture and said, Looks weird. Must be a new kind of drink. In the next couple of pictures, she drank the drink and a man comes into the fold saying, Hey, slut, you seen my piss sample anywhere? The next picture depicted a woman with a dog's head up her skirt, and her thought bubble implied she was enjoying whatever the dog was doing. The caption underneath read, He used to go for dogs, now he goes for sluts. These drawings said a lot about the prisoner who created them. They said a lot about Bilal Scaff. This story starts in Lebanon, way back in 1975, in the country's northern city of Tripoli. Lebanon was at a time of civil unrest and Australia had recently relaxed its borders. Mustafa and Berea Scaff arrived in Australia from their homeland of Lebanon in 1976 with not much more than their clothes. They were poor, illiterate, but excited at the prospect of a fresh start. Both of their families had suffered violence in Lebanon, and the safety and opportunity Australia offered was very appealing. In a short number of years, they were able to save enough money to buy a small weatherboard home in the working-class suburb of Greenacre, New South Wales. This was a fairly raucous area with a high level of unemployment, but it was affordable. On the 14th of September 1981, they had a son named Bilal, and a couple of short years later, on the 7th of May 1983, they had their second son, Muhammad. The boys would attend Chalora Primary then Strathfield State High for a short stint, before attending Belmore Boys High and Homebush High School. Barrier would endure two miscarriages in the next decade, but in 97 and 99, her and Mustafa would have two more children. Bilal and Muhammad would be older brothers, with a big age gap between them and their younger brother and sister. And it's probably due to these circumstances that Mustafa started taking on more work at the time to support his growing family. This left the impressionable Bilal and Muhammad at home in a house without much authority, at a time when they probably needed it. 
Bilal had always been described as a fairly nice guy to this point, a normal bloke who you could buy some food and hang out with. But in early high school, he started to have problems. And this probably stemmed from the home situation. See, Bilal had a very strong relationship with his mother and he could do no wrong in her eyes. So very little in the way of discipline came from her. By putting Bilal up on this pedestal, his mother, Baria, effectively enabled his bad behaviour, which then flowed into his school life. At the age of 14, Bilal is expelled from high school. It was said that he targeted younger and weaker kids to lead and do his bidding. His behaviour continues to worsen having finished school, and with no study ambition or job prospects, he begins shoplifting and runs afoul of the law on a criminal damage to car offence. Bilal was facing a reality in the outside world where he just couldn't take what he wanted without any consequences, unlike his home life, where he was the big shot and could do just that. But his parents understandably get concerned at this point and have the bright idea to send him to family in Lebanon for a visit, which might give him a bit of perspective or appreciation for his life in Australia, perhaps. At the very least, clear his big head. So in early 1999, Bilal jet sets to the Middle East to stay with family in a small village in Lebanon. His folks thought this trip would also remove a lot of the risks he had in Australia and also make it harder to get drugs. So it sounds like they very much thought of this as a sort of cleansing trip for their son. This village where he stayed was very small, with only about 20 houses in it. And although the country's civil tensions from decades earlier had subsided by this time, it was still a stark contrast to the Western developed society that we know here in Australia, the one where Bilal had grown up to this point. Of the many glaring differences, it was apparent that women didn't enjoy the same freedoms they did in Australia, a possible foreshadowing when considering the impact this may have had on Bilal's subconscious when considering the crimes he'd later commit. But really, Bilal Scaff had only committed minor criminal offences to this point when he returned from Lebanon, but that would soon change. His parents saw this in him too, and they wanted to instil discipline, but it was seemingly too late. Bilal was craving power, and unfortunately, his trip to Lebanon seems to have the opposite effect his parents intended. It had amplified his thirst, not diminished it. Despite this concern, Baria Scaff would frame a photograph of Bilal from his time in Lebanon, holding what I'd call a fairly substantial-looking gun. She'd later downplay this, saying it was just a gun to shoot birds, something commonly done in Lebanon, supposedly. Bilal would take up a spray-painting course at Ultimo TAFE upon his return, and his father, Mustafa, then lands him a job working alongside him at the State Rail Customer Service. Bilal also got engaged to a girlfriend of his and his petty criminal activity continued to escalate during this time. But his brother, Muhammad, was following a similar path. Muhammad is expelled from Belmore Boys High and Punchbowl and Bankstown Highs as well, and his criminal behaviour also begins to escalate with his brother's return from Lebanon. He'd been displaying rude conduct towards females and started surrounding himself with a crew of young men who would soon join up with Bilal's group of mates, under his leadership. So now we're going to get to the escalation of what would become the gang and their crimes. But before we get to that, Chloe. Yeah, I think it's important we note before launching into the story, which has a whole cast of different people in it, that we'll be using aliases for all of the victims in this story as they are still alive. Even though some of them have come forward and bravely told their stories, for the sake of consistency from our points of view, we feel it's best to use aliases across the board in the case. When it comes to the perpetrators, we'll be using aliases in the instance where their identities have been suppressed by the courts and only using real names of those who have been identified and published in the media previously. We'll probably point these out as we go along. I just think it's a good thing to cover off at the start so we don't have to keep clearing the air on that point. So setting the scene from here, we're in the year 2000 now, only a month out from the Olympic Games hosted in Sydney. There's a lot of attention on the nation and on this spectacle in particular, and a lot of government resources being pumped into the event. This included police security, obviously. It was a common occurrence for there to be crimes such as street thefts or or muggings, uh, you might say, in these areas of Sydney. They were usually non-violent, but occasionally the victims would get roughed up. 
As we said, police were stretched very thin around this time, but even so, it didn't go unnoticed as the increase in offending ramped up around this time. But these offences would often happen very quickly and in an ambush style, which made it very difficult for the victims to identify the offenders. On April 12, 2000, young Maria Rossi had pulled into a quiet street to take a phone call. She was driving home in her boyfriend's car, which she'd borrowed for the day, While on the phone, a group of six boys of Middle Eastern appearance appeared from the nighttime shadows and rolled her in a terrifying attack where one of the attackers carried a blade. They stole her car and her necklace, which was inscribed with the Portuguese words Lembrasa dos Padrinos and the date of her christening. The day before this, on April the 11th, a young 14-year-old Vanessa Hughes was walking home near Punchbowl High School when a group of Middle Eastern boys descended on her in their vehicle and they snatched her bag and stole her mobile phone. One of SCAF's gang members, a young man named Mohammed Sanosi, would be connected to this crime shortly after when someone contacted Vanessa at home and told her to meet them at a particular time and place and she could collect her phone. Vanessa wisely called police who sent undercover operatives with her and they took Sanosi in for questioning. He denied any involvement with stealing the phone, conceding he was in the car that day but didn't know anything was stolen. He even denied knowing all the guys in the car. So he was let go as there was no reason to suspect anything bigger than the petty crime this was. But that would change. I think these two petty offences are important to point out because they occur around four to five months prior to the following attacks we're going to cover shortly. I think this highlights the rapid escalation of the gang's criminal behaviour under Bilal Scaff's leadership. The 4th of August 2000, Tanya Carter was catching the train home to Punchbowl from her new part-time job at McDonald's when she's set upon by four guys of Middle Eastern appearance. They harass, abuse and slap her, but she fights back to the boys' surprise. They threaten to knock her out and ask her things like, Do you suck? Will you fuck me? Come on, you'll like it, it's really big. She would escape when she got to Punchbowl and her mother, who was waiting at home for her, went back to the station to confront the boys and they laughed when she approached, saying, here comes the slut's mother. But they didn't hang around to discuss anything further with Tanya's mother. They took off and this attack was reported to the police. Four days later, Annie Vaughan was forced to perform oral sex on two males of similar descriptions to what were already mentioned. One of these boys was supposedly her friend and she initially went wheeling with him for a walk to a nearby park. But when there, this boy who called himself Abdul would meet his friend Muhammad and they'd force her to perform the aforementioned acts on them both. They'd end up binding her limbs and pushing her to the ground, stating they wanted a fuck now but were scared off by the arrival of a car and headlights as it lit up the area. This takes us to August the 10th, 2000, just four weeks before the Sydney Olympic Games were set to begin. 18-year-old Debbie Greenwood and her friend, 17-year-old Michelle Osborne, headed to Chatswood's Westfield Shopping Centre for a catch-up. They browsed some stores, didn't buy anything, and decided to have a quick bite to eat at McDonald's before taking the bus back home. While having their dinner, a group of four boys approached them and began chatting in a friendly fashion. Debbie was turned off engaging with them further when one of the boys shook her hand and simultaneously passed her a condom. But the boys offered them a lift home and the additional shiny promise of smoking some weed on the way, a bag of which they had on hand and showed to the girls. Debbie was reluctant, but Michelle seemed happy to go along. The offer of a couple of joints sweetening the deal and saving them the bus ride. As they arrived in the car park, another four boys, clearly friends of the original four, joined up with them and the group, now eight strong plus the girls, split up. Four boys and the girls getting into a battered white van and the other four boys into a red Toyota Corolla. 
All was well until about 10 minutes into the trip when Debbie saw the harbour bridge and the boys began speaking of hiding guns when they passed some nearby police. Michelle had began to make out with one of the boys in the back of, at this point, a guy who called himself Adam. Another guy in the back made a pass at Debbie, attempting to grab her breasts, but she brushed him aside in no uncertain terms, to which he said, come on, let me have some fun. From here there'd be constant calls between the guys in the car and others, speaking in Arabic, seemingly coordinating to meet up. They would stop at McDonald's in Stanmore, where Debbie and Michelle would be both propositioned for oral sex, which they both declined. A while later, the girls, now beyond worried and approaching scared, would be driven to Northcote Park in Greenacre. The girls would be split up at this time, Debbie taken first by this guy calling himself Adam to a secluded spot in the dark park. He'd demand oral sex from her and was almost passive-aggressive, saying that if she didn't do what he wanted, the others would come and do worse to her. He'd add if she satisfied him, he'd tell them not to bother her. Debbie would be raped, crash-tackled to the ground by a group of young men, picked up and thrown into the bushes, and forced to perform oral sex repeatedly to several different young men, then finally robbed of her personal belongings. At one point she saw a 20-centimetre blade and feared for her life, The men referred to her as a cheap slut and many other insults. Once they'd gotten what they wanted, they left her alone on the ground in the darkness of the park, without her friend or belongings, cold, shaking and scared. Michelle would be in a different area of the park, being subjected to a brutal assault of her own. One of the rapists distinguished himself in the pecking order by noting he had a WRX, so he should go before another, the car implying some sort of status within the scummy crew. She was dragged behind a toilet block and subjected to guy after guy forcing her to perform oral sex. This would then move to rape and she was simultaneously physically and verbally assaulted if she displayed any restraint at any point. Adam, who she'd kissed in the van earlier, would leave his assault on Debbie as the round robin of rape continued between the gang and he'd sexually assault Michelle last at one point taking a phone call from a family member while performing the despicable act, saying he'd be home in 10 minutes. Michelle would be left in a similar state to Debbie. They'd find each other and eventually flag down some people in a car. The police would be called to the scene and the incident reported. At the time, the police started connecting the dots between this attack and the escalating attacks in the days and weeks prior. Two days later, on the 12th of August 2000, Natalie Vickers would get an SMS from a guy named Sam, who she'd met at the Greenacre McDonald's around six months ago. They'd been out a couple of times as friends, and she was comfortable with him each time. So Natalie's mother encouraged her to go out into the city for a night with Sam. She'd been studying hard and deserved to let her hair down. Sam arrived a little while later and picked Natalie up. They got into a car driven by another man, apparently named Michael, with a third accompanying passenger named Ibrahim. During this car ride, all three men spoke frequently in Arabic, talking on mobiles to others, and at one point they threw out a set of licence plates from the window. The trio said they had a small errand to run before Sam and Natalie would head off for the evening, noting that they were meeting a guy who owed Sam $600. Natalie tried to keep a calm outward appearance, but was growing increasingly concerned particularly when the other two in the car began referring to Sam as Muhammad. They eventually stopped at a park in the suburb of Greenacre, although Natalie didn't know where they were at this point, and this was apparently where they were meeting this debtor of Sam's. The other two, Michael and Ibrahim, left the car momentarily, leaving Sam, or Muhammad, with Natalie. He made a pass at her and she declined. Then the other two returned and took it in turns of making passes at her, at which point Natalie began to fire up at her friend Sam before she left on foot. At this point she was chased down, grabbed by the hair and dragged to a dark area of the park near some concrete cylinders. Also at this point, a white van had arrived with another 11 men, so that's a total of 14 now. One of the guys from the van approached her and said he was Sam's brother, also named Sam, and he would lead the preceding attack on her. They stripped off her clothes held her down, and repeatedly raped her. One of the rapists, a guy with a ponytail, 
held a gun to her head and threatened to kill her if she told anyone about this. And then she was kicked viciously in the stomach. As Natalie was lying helplessly on the ground, subjected to assault after assault, the gang formed a circle and joked, speaking Arabic and insulting her. She sensed at a moment a reprieve in the assault, and this triggered her flight instinct. She took off, her clothes barely clinging to her, and the gang gave chase. Natalie spotted a man walking nearby and ran towards him. The white van had hit the road again at this point, circling around the bend, and the ponytail rapist leant out the window with his gun pointing at her, telling her to get in the fucking van. But once the gang spotted this man walking nearby, a man who was their size, they took off. The man, who we'll call Jeff, helped the battered Natalie to his house nearby, where she would use his phone to call for help shortly thereafter. Her attackers continued to terrorise her in the days after the attack via SMS, saying things like they knew where she lived and, hey sexy, come back. Natalie would report the attack to police, who continued assessing the mounting evidence, noting the increased number of offenders and escalating violence and the potential that these attacks were linked. The attacks would have a huge impact on Natalie, as they would all of the victims in this case, and she'd be unable to face going back to school after this. Now, this probably speaks to the arrogance of the gang and their intelligence also, but at this time, they thought these attacks were going unreported and unnoticed by the police. And I want to take a moment here, Chloe, to really point out the police investigation. It's very easy to pick apart police investigations in the comfort of your armchair at home, especially with 2020 hindsight down the track, when often all of the facts are spread out in front of you. But I think people often overlook the magnitude, the sheer task of assessing these things in real time as they unfold, when so many facets are often unknown at that time. In this case, the police investigation was exceptionally sharp and responsive. And as we see this story unfold, unfortunately escalating in brutality, we'll see more of how the police investigation worked so effectively to catch these guys and the subsequent prosecution, which in my view was also strong. The police were working diligently in the background, trying to connect bits and pieces of evidence and descriptions they had. And you've got to keep in mind a few things at this point. To my understanding, the rapists mostly used condoms, which made it difficult to obtain sufficient genetic material for police analysis. The names of these guys was very hazy, differing from attack to attack, but it was the descriptions and the MOs that was connecting them. Even so, these were young men of a generic appearance when factoring in the demographics of the area. And also, this was the year 2000. While that doesn't sound too long ago, it's nearly 20 years. Technology has come a long way since then. I just think these points are important to consider when factoring the investigation. As we said earlier, now we know all of the facts and have it laid out in a neat little timeline in front of us. But at the time, this was pandemonium at a heightened time for the country. A few days after the attack on Natalie, the gang would rob a woman of her car, setting her up via an internet chat room under the alias of Troublesome. In a similar style, the crowd of them would show as she arrived to meet this troublesome character and they'd subsequently take her keys and her car. Now, while this crime wouldn't leave this lady, who we'll call Laura, in the same state the gang had left their most recent victims, I think it's important to point out because it'd be another two and a half weeks after this they gang raped their next victim. But their criminality continued during this time. And I think that's worth noting these guys weren't taking extended breaks to resume normal lives. This kind of unregulated, take-what-they-want, cavalier behaviour had really become their lives. So it was around this time that the two gang rapes were officially connected and Strike Force Seder is formed, headed up by Detective Michael Porter. And look, there was a whole host of investigators, both uniformed and plain-clothed police, involved in many facets of this investigation, who all deserve shout-outs, if we're being frank. But this case is just so vast and sprawling. To thank them all and give a rundown of their accomplishments would be an episode in itself. But I think it should be said, it can't be understated the value of the police work in this investigation in bringing these guys to justice. 
So within the first week of its formation, a constable runs a rego check on a brown Toyota Corona in Punchbowl, spotting four boys in and around the vehicle who vaguely match the descriptions of some of the recent offenders. So he runs the rego on a gut feel and it comes up unregistered. He approaches the vehicle and questions the boys. They hoof it on the constable, but he catches up. And these boys were young, 14, 15, 16. Despite being outnumbered, the constable was not a young girl, so there's no violence. They don't resist, as the constable calls for backup. One of the boys is ID'd as Muhammad Scaff. FYI, Chloe, most of these guys, and there's over a dozen of them, are all called either Muhammad or Bilal, or derivatives of that anyway. So the police find condoms on these boys, girls' clothing in their car, and long story short, two of them are identified as Abdul Mansour and Mahmoud Al-Abdal, the attackers on Annie Vaughan, the young girl from a few weeks ago who they'd forced to perform oral sex. Now just to reiterate, these aren't their real names. They are suppressed by the courts in this case due to the perpetrator's age at the time of the attacks. The two get hauled off to juvenile detention, but Mohammed Scaff and his other offsider are released. So the police had a win and they had a lead. It was a good start, but the depths of the evil they were amidst would strike once again in the coming week. August 30, 2000. Sally Sharp was catching the train home to Bankstown Station after attending a job interview. It was mid-afternoon and she was reading The Great Gatsby. She was an avid reader, aged 18, and she'd just left school the year prior. So in between looking for jobs, she'd often immerse herself in the classics like Withering Heights, Pride and Prejudice and The Picture of Dorian Gray. While on the train, Sally would be approached by a group of five young men and they started talking to her. She was nicely dressed, having been to her her interview, and after a comment or two about that, the comments from the young man quickly turned disparaging. They asked her if she was Aussie and she said yes. They seemed very proud of being outwardly disparaging of other cultures. At first it was all in good fun, typical teenage stuff. They asked Sally if she wanted to smoke some pot and not feeling uncomfortable or threatened at this point, she said yes. One of the guys, wearing a yellow jumper, he'd offered her the pot, sidled up to her as they left the train at Bankstown Station and headed to the Marion Street car park. She fobbed him off and they continued on to the spot where they'd light up. As they continued to walk, the boys began to get gropey with her. Now this might sound naive in the context of the crimes we've been outlining here, but you've got to remember that this is a young girl who has no inkling as to the landscape at present. And also, it was daylight at this time. She believed that these guys were harmless enough. She could cop a hit and move on, maybe make a friend in the process. Unfortunately, she'd get more than she bargained for with these guys. As they walked, Sally began to get nervous the more gropey they got. And she came up with a diversionary tactic of taking a phone call pretending it was a relative or something that she had to leave quickly for. So she rang a friend and when the friend answered, the guy in the yellow jumper snatched the mobile phone and told the friend, we'll have her home in 10 minutes, before shoving the phone down the front of his pants saying that he'd give it back after they had their sesh. The group led her to a toilet block in the Marion Street car park and the guy with the yellow jumper told Sally, you're up. You're not getting your phone back until you fuck me. Sally was obviously shocked and desperate for a way out, but the yellow jumper guy's demeanour had gone from pleasant to diabolical in an instant as he forced her into the cubicle violently. The other four outside weren't going to let her escape. She pleaded with him at first, please don't do this, and he replied while pushing her face first towards the wall and pulling down her skirt and underwear, I'm going to fuck you Leb style. She felt his disgusting breath and panting on her face as he raped her. As soon as he'd left, leaving Sally in a crying mess on the floor, she'd barely had time to contemplate what had occurred and how she might escape before two of the other boys from the train were in the cubicle with her, arguing, seemingly, but in their native tongue, over who would rape her next. The thinner of the two prevailed, the fat guy being lower in the pecking order, and Sally was subjected to yet another assault. He spat at her when he finished, saying, fuck, that was good. Another guy from the train, one wearing an orange top, came in next, grabbing her shoulders and glaring at her, saying, it's my right, and I like a bit of head before I fuck. The tag team continued after this, 
as another guy wearing a grey striped jumper assaulted her and shortly after, Sally managed to make her way out of the toilet block. At this time, she saw a dark-skinned woman and the woman said, you know this is a bad area. Sally sensed some relief at the sound of the woman's softly spoken voice. The woman asked Sally if she had any money and Sally handed her a $20 note she'd gotten from her mother earlier that day. The woman said again, this is a bad area, this time adding, you should have known better at the end. She put her arm around Sally and walked her towards a nearby black car. A guy standing near the car said, thanks Mary, to the woman, and the woman left as mysteriously as she'd arrived. The fat guy from the train and the toilets was there, but this was a new group of boys in this car. The driver began consoling Sally at first, saying the boys who'd attacked her should be ashamed, and he offered her a lift back home. Feeling safe, or at least grasping on to the shred of decency she was being shown after what she'd just endured, Sally got into the car with the new group. But instead of going towards their home, they drove her to the Bankstown Trotting Club. Here, she'd be forced into sex a further three times by the men in the black car, and she'd continue to hear mobile phones going off and the boys speaking in Arabic. Her attackers continued with the verbal insults too, calling her an Aussie pig and asking her if Leb tastes better than Aussie. Soon, a third carload would arrive and, broken and in disbelief this time, Sally went with this next group in the red car. She was forced into the back seat by two brothers, both named Sam apparently, and she was forcibly raped and assaulted again. Next, they'd take Sally to an industrial estate where more rapists would arrive and the hysteria would grow each time as gang members began hooping and cheering one another on with one of them, who looked like an outright prick, Sally would later say, who'd raped her in the red car, leading the gang enthusiastically. She'd be threatened at gunpoint that if she tried anything or said anything, she'd be dead. Next thing she knew, Sally was being hosed down, the water stinging her skin. She'd then be raped again by gang members, and finally her ordeal would come to an end as the group dropped her off at Lidcombe, a wet, cold, dazed and shaken mess. Her ordeal lasted for six hours over three locations and when she was being transported between the locations she always thought that she was going to, that her ordeal was then over and it would begin again with another shift of uh, some of these 14 men who were involved. 14 men uh, abused, sexually uh, uh, assaulted her. And that was Margaret Canine QC, one of the Crown prosecutors in the trials. After Sally and her mother reported the attack to police and the special officers of the strike force were called in to investigate, they caught a lead. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the months leading up to the Olympics, CCTV had been upgraded in the rail network. Footage from the Bankstown railway station before the attack showed Sally and the five initial boys who had ushered her away for a smoke. Strike force leader Michael Porter recognised some of them as being a couple of the same guys one of his constables had brought in not too long ago. Mohammed Scaff was his name, the one wearing the yellow jumper. September 1st, only two days later, police staged nighttime raids on five houses of people they had identified as being possibly connected with the attacks. This included the Scaff family. The police would encounter denials from Baria Scaff and aggressive, contemptuous responses from Bilal and Muhammad Scaff as the police searched their property. At the property of the Sanusi family, one of the brothers there, Muhammad, is wearing an orange jumper, same as the one seen in the train station CCTV. And at the home of another alleged rapist, we'll call this guy Mustafa Ismail, as his identity is suppressed by the court due to an emotional and intellectual disability he has, this guy is matching the descriptions of the fat guy described by attack victims. 
Mohammed Scaff denies any involvement and even provides an alibi, which the police have to confirm. And he states it isn't him on the CCTV footage, but a cousin. Mohammed Sanusi confirms his identity in the CCTV footage, but says nothing else. And Mustafa Ismail, well, he doesn't rat anyone out, but his alibi story attempting to match Mohammed Scaff's crumbles quickly. Sanusi and Ismail are charged over the attack on Sally Sharp at this time, but Mohammed Scaff is released for the police to assess his alibi. The two others are also released on bail and the police organise surveillance on their own growing list of suspects. So we've already mentioned two younger boys named Abdul Mansour and Mahmoud Al-Abdal who attacked Annie Vaughan, forcing her into oral sex and attempting vaginal rape before being scared off by a car's headlights. These two are aliases, as we said, due to their age. And similarly, Mustafa Ismail is an alias. But Ismail would be identified pretty easily as the fat guy from the attacks. And all of these guys would be definitively linked to the SCAF gang. But we're not done yet here. On September 5th, 2000, Elizabeth Craft and Kelly Grant were friends who had not seen each other in a while. They met up in Bankstown to spend the day together, do some shopping, lunch, general catching up. Later in the evening, they go to Bankstown Hospital to see Kelly's boyfriend. At some point, Elizabeth would have an altercation with one of Kelly's boyfriend's friends, which would cause an argument between Kelly and her boyfriend. This mightn't all seem by the by, but it led to the girls wanting to leave the hospital without their friends. So they ended up getting dropped off at Beverly Hills Station where they planned to catch a train home. And this is where things turned sour. While the pair realised the station was closed for the night and they only had $20 between them, they started to wonder how they'd get home. A nearby group of five guys started talking to them, making offhanded comments about how nice Kelly's boyfriend must have been just dropping them off here at 12.30. Anything could happen to them. Shortly after, the girls would be surrounded by the group and forced into a car where they'd be told to do what they were told and they'd be okay. The men allegedly brandished a knife on the trip. They were taken back to a rundown house in Villawood. They were herded inside, traipsed through a maze of McDonald's wrappers and trash before being split up and taken into other rooms where they'd be raped at knife point. Both girls would be forced to perform oral and vaginal sex on the three young men. One of them was told that they deserved it because they're Australian and sometime after 5am they were threatened, forced to hand over their bank cards and PIN numbers and then released. The girls would later report the attacks and be able to lead police to the residence. When police attended the property, the young residents were abusive and attempted to assault police but were easily subdued. The four men two brothers, one cousin and another friend, would be interviewed and deny any involvement. They would inevitably be charged. The Alamedine brothers, Ahmed and Khaled, Mustafa Hassani and Omar Al-Khani. These are all aliases for these guys. Their names are suppressed. I'm not sure on the reasons for that. But these guys were not the ones on the radar for the most recent attacks the strike force had been investigating. The guys coming under surveillance would present in little groups or cliques, which were appearing to have all been united under Bilal Scaff to form this huge gang that had been raping girls. But this Villawood attack, equally as brutal and disgusting, is allegedly to be unrelated, or at least the offenders unconnected to the Scaff gang. But we'll come back to that and the hypothesis on the reality of that a bit later on. Let's look at the surveillance of the Scaff gang and some more of the police work now. So pretty quickly, the police surveillance of Muhammad Scaff shows he's pretty chummy with this other guy. And there's this game of chess going on for a few days where the pair are pulled over at one point and this mate claims to be called Marty Hlebart. But then it becomes apparent over time he's really called Tayab Sheikh. So he's trying to give this false identity, but police are fairly certain they have him on CCTV too. And some of the victims, namely Sally Sharp in this instance, positively identify a photo of him along with Mohammed Scaff and Mustafa Ismail. There's constant denials and false alibis given in the game of cat and mouse that goes on over a few days. 
But inevitably, police charge Mohammed Scaff and Tayyab Sheikh in connection with the attack on Sally Sharp. Police surveillance around this time showed the boys attempting to lure other girls at Bondi Beach and they'd even attempted another attack while police followed them at one point. This was thwarted by the girls, I believe, but not before Muhammad had held a lighter to one of the girls and threatened to burn her after she'd slapped him. But also in the police's time at Bondi, they notice another trio, three guys named Mahmoud Shami, Muhammad Ghanem and Bilal Hajid. It would appear that these three were best pals, and all three were also mates with Bilal Scaff. Charmy, interestingly, was driving a red Toyota Corolla, and Ganem had a long ponytail. So we have a few little groups coming together here, with a few overlaps, to form this one bigger crew. And obviously the centrepiece with all of this is turning out to be Bilal Scaff. And this guy's brash arrogance is just staggering to the police when they attempt to talk to him. October the 31st, they interview him at home where he was agreeable to talk but denied every assertion put to him, despite being photo identified by more than one victim at this point. Scaff's body language was also overtly irritated. Arms folded, no guilt and laughing at claims. He had no empathy for the victims, laughing when the police relayed some basics about the assaults. He was sure he'd gotten away with this, but also he thought he'd done nothing wrong. And you can see this attitude in his inevitable charge photograph. He's smiling ear to ear, the sheer arrogance of this guy. The noose would really tighten on Bilal Scaff during the earlier mentioned raids, when police would find ironclad evidence of a fake set of ID papers Scaff had been using calling himself Adam Newland Gilhad. They knew it was an Adam who'd been the prominent attacker at two of the gang rapes. They'd also find the SIM card from Vanessa Hughes's phone, if you recall the theft of her phone earlier in the story as she walked home from school, and around Barrier Scaff's own neck, a necklace with the Portuguese words Lembranza dos Padrinos, Maria Rossi's christening necklace. So when all was said and done in the investigation, police would find DNA linking Bilal Scaff, mountains of circumstantial evidence linking him, and the others were just named in numerous cases. Not all of them for everyone, but some for one and some for others. But charges would be against those named, plus another two whose identities are suppressed due to age. But in the end, there was only enough evidence to charge eight males plus the two younger boys for the earlier attacks. But it is believed there were 14 or more potential suspects in total. Now, whether these line up with the aforementioned Alamedine brothers, Mustafa Hassani and Omar Al-Khani, I'm not sure. There are so many of them in this revolving cast, but I guess it's a possibility if you're in the camp that believes these cases are connected. And I think in leading up to trial and the outcomes here, it's important once again to point out the strength of the police investigation. It was said that this case was investigated in a similar way to how a murder would be investigated, not the same way a sexual assault would normally be looked into. The police used CCTV, wiretaps, mobile intercepts and mobile pings to pinpoint locations. And while that sounds commonplace now, let's not forget this was back in the year 2000, So we're talking Nokia 3310s with snake on them. Mobiles weren't even commonplace for teens at this time. So the experts the prosecution would bring in would be a big deal at the time. This would really corroborate the coordinating aspect of the attacks the victims alleged, with the attacker constantly being on their mobile phones and speaking Arabic. Police would discover incriminating SMSs also, examples being... When you're feeling down, bash a Christian or a Catholic and lift up. And I've got a slut with me, bro. Come to Punch Bowl. At trial, Bilal Scaff would change his story to admitting he had sexual relations with the alleged victims, but it was consensual. He was extremely flippant and arrogant in the dock. 
He'd click his fingers at courtroom bailiffs to get more water and then rip up the polystyrene cups and leave them littered all over the floor of the dock. He'd refused to allow his defence to tender any psychological reports, which could have aided him. He'd faced 21 charges across four trials, each with different co-defendants. The Scaff brothers received the largest sentences of the gang rapists. But before we get to their respective sentences, let's touch on the community's reaction to this. The trials would be a huge thing in the media. The defendants would allege and take the view that this whole thing was a farce and that they were targets in an anti-Muslim conspiracy. They continually lodge appeals and force their victims to relive the terror they'd inflicted. Many would continue to tell their stories and fight time after time, but for some of the victims, it became too much to continually testify. And these poor women had to constantly deny that they'd given consent, which thankfully the juries and judge would see right through. I mean, consenting to sex is one thing, but who would consent to the brutality that these women endured, the theft of their belongings and the physical assaults and injuries? Berea Scaff made her feelings known at trials too. Here's the head of the strike force, Detective Michael Porter, describing her courtroom conduct. She would block the corridor as we were trying to lead the girls uh, through the corridor to get into court. She'd be eyeballing the girls. On a couple of occasions, she would pretend to do a grotty spit, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And even referred to the the girls as we were getting them through to court past her as shamuta, which is, as I understand it, Arabic for slut. The rapists would even try to silence victims with threats, even posing as police officers to track them down and deliver messages. The strike force eventually relocated four victims and their families throughout the trials. On August 15th, 2002, after a series of lengthy appeals and retrials and delays, Bilal Scaff was found guilty and sentenced for his acts in ringleading the Sydney gang rapes. He smiled when this was read. His mother, Baria, yelled out that her son was innocent and then collapsed in shock. Scaff parted with colourful words to the sentencing judge, Justice Finane, proclaiming his innocence and calling him a see you next Tuesday. Many of the suppression orders on the offenders would be lifted after the trials and it would spread through the media that the rapists were Muslim, specifically of Lebanese descent. Reports noted the attacks were racially and religiously motivated. Both Islamic and Lebanese communities would be on the receiving end. This theme would saturate every aspect of these crimes, both before and after the trials, and even to this day. But I think it's important to note the following, and this was really eloquently pointed out by clinical psychologist Leah Geritano in a Beyond the Darklands documentary on Bilal Scaff. Gang rapes aren't about religion or culture. They occur in sports, street gangs, universities and the military. But in this case, religion and race was inserted by the offenders, not the victims or the media, and it was used as a device to heighten bonding within the gang and to justify these crimes. Now, I thought that was an incredibly insightful comment there, Chloe. Yeah, definitely. The new law of aggravated sexual assault in company would be created in New South Wales Parliament after these attacks to distinguish the difference and potential severity in relation to aggravated sexual assault. Some of the defendants refused representation at times throughout the trials because they believed this was an anti-Muslim conspiracy. This meant they were able to cross-examine witnesses, including the victims, which was a traumatic situation. More legislation would be passed to prevent this in the future. So legally, we can see here this case really changed the landscape. At first, Bilal Scaff was imprisoned at Long Bay Jail, but he was packed up and shipped off to Goulburn Supermax after prison authorities became aware of a plot where three inmates were planning to inject him with HIV-infected blood. At Goulburn Supermax, which is one of the toughest, if not the toughest, prison in Australia... Scaff was caught hiding a crowbar in a towel, which he allegedly had for personal protection. He was segregated after this and placed in protective custody, so it's pretty apparent he's a wildly unpopular guy in prison. 
Even the Lebanese inmates turned on Scaff and his cohorts due to the image they'd given their community. Scaff has an ultra-aggressive ongoing feud with a guy named Robert Black Farmer. Now, this guy bashed a girl named Lauren Huxley with a pair of fibro cutters before dousing her with petrol and leaving her to die. She'd suffer traumatic brain injuries from this attack. Now, the pair have a deep hatred for each other, that's Scaff and Black, and they regularly threaten to kill each other through the fence in the prison yard that keeps them separated. We're going to talk more about Robert Black Farmer and his criminal history, particularly his brutal assault against Lauren Huxley, in our next Patreon episode. Scaff's fiancée, who stood by him throughout the trials, broke off the relationship in 2003. A month later, the drawings you mentioned in the introduction, Sean, were found in Scaff's cell, depicting violent gang rape and execution of his ex-fiancée by a military-style type character who is calling her a slut. Prison officers were shocked by the graphic nature of the cartoon-style images. Scaff was also charged with writing a threatening letter to Corrective Services Commissioner Rod Woodham. White powder had been put into a letter and it read, Don't take this as a threat, but if all Muslims aren't released by January 2003, Australia and citizens will be in danger of bombing. Barrier Scaff would be banned for a time from attending any New South Wales prison after she was caught smuggling letters to Bilal. And his father, Mustafa, would allegedly bribe a prison officer over the phone at one point. Now we get to the sentences. A lot of people believe the Scaff brothers should never be released, that they'll do more of the same. A total of 18 men were arrested over attacks on eight victims. And if my math is correct, that's 10 from the Scaff gang plus the other four from the Villawood attack, meaning 14 prosecuted and sent to jail for varying stints. Ahmed Alamedine was sentenced to six years with a four-year minimum and his brother Khaled would get a six-month shorter sentence. Mustafa Hassani would receive a similar sentence and Omar Al-Khani received 18 months for his role in the attack. He didn't rape the girls that dreadful evening in Villawood. The connection of this attack to the Scaff gang rapes remains up for debate. The Scaff family would later say they were cousins with some of these perpetrators. And we're talking the same city within weeks of one another. I find it hard not to connect them, whether these guys were involved in the scaff incidents and just not identified, who knows. Either way, connected or not, the attack was just as brutal and degrading to the two female victims, Elizabeth and Kelly, who endured the horrendous ordeal. Tayab Sheikh would change his plea to guilty and receive a lesser sentence of eight years, with a minimum of four and a half. So he's out and about. His attitude seems to be in the same as a scaff camp last I read about him, but he seems to be keeping a low profile these days. Muhammad Ghanem, described as Bilal Scaff's enthusiastic lieutenant, had his original 40-year sentence cut on appeal to 17 with a 12-year minimum. That included an acquittal in the Sally Sharp case. So this guy's been out since 2015, but recently he landed himself in hot water again, getting caught in a police sting with a kilogram of crystal meth in the boot of his car. This was just a couple of months ago now, so he's facing a potential 20-year stretch for this. Bilal Haljid was sentenced to 23 years, reduced on appeal to 17, with a non-parole period of 12 years. He's also been out since 2015, He's been pursued by a current affair programs over compensation payments to his victims and for an apology, which I think he eventually gave. You can see these clips online. He's not been without his troubles, at one point copying a domestic violence-related charge where he'd busted the door in on a building he was trying to gain entry to, believing his wife was inside having an affair. How he's married, I don't know. But apparently him and his wife were working through it, He's a garden maintenance worker for a council. Mahmoud Chami, or Mambo, the apprentice bricklayer he was known at the time of his incarceration, received an 18-year sentence with a 10-year minimum. He was released on parole in 2013. This guy cowered with his head lowered in the dock when sentenced. His family was actually one of the only ones who outwardly condemned what their son had done and showed empathy for the victims. He was also engaged at the time of his incarceration 
She would have had a long wait if she waited at all, but he's also kept a low profile since release. Mohamed Sanusi received 21-year sentence, reduced to 16 with a minimum of 10 on appeal. His parole was denied a couple of times due to some rowdy clashes his brothers had with staff in the Juvenile Correction Centre. And then when he was released on parole, it was subsequently revoked as it came to light his brothers were involved in the Brothers for Life gang. But he soon got parole again in 2013 and apparently he's not the same person he was when he committed the rapes, according to his lawyer. He's not allowed to make contact with his brothers without permission. Mahmoud Sanusi, one of his younger brothers, received 11 years with a six-and-a-half-year minimum. He was released in 2009 but had his parole revoked due to failing multiple drug tests. Mustafa Ismail received 25 years with a minimum of 15. This was reduced further upon appeal and he was released under strict parole conditions in 2014. Mohamed Scaff received a 32-year sentence, reduced to 23 on appeal. He was eligible for parole in 2018 but was denied as he showed no remorse for his victims and continues to this day to make sexually inappropriate remarks to female staff where he's incarcerated and he still blames his victims for agreeing to come with them, putting the blame squarely on them. So he'll be munching prison chow for a while longer yet until he has another crack at parole in July this year I believe, just a few short months away. Bilal Scaff, the architect and leader of these sickening series of attacks, has been diagnosed a psychopath. Like his younger brother, he showed absolutely no remorse for his victims, and it's been said that he'll always be a danger to the community. He received a record-setting 55-year original sentence, reduced to 36 on appeal. He'll be eligible for parole in 2031 at the ripe old age of 49. In summary, Chloe, the victims, well, I think it's safe to say the courage of these girls stopped this. The strength they displayed in going through the trials, appeals and retrials to ensure these scumbags were locked away cannot be understated. Alongside the excellent police work by Strikeforce Seder and the strong prosecuting, the resolve shown on all of these fronts is what put these guys where they should have been. Absolutely. The victims showed insurmountable courage. The gang mentality in this case was so scary. The power and control that comes from it and the hive mentality that breeds was especially so unhealthy and obviously incredibly dangerous. There's a really good textbook on this topic, and I know it's a textbook so not everyone's going to be keen to read it, but it's called The Global Perspective on Youth Gang Behaviour, Violence and Weapons Use, and it just describes things of what you mentioned earlier, Sean, why people get involved with gangs and the kind of themes and tools that they use to get people to do what they want and commit these kind of crimes where they may not have ever thought about it before. There are also some great free resources that I wanted to mention for anyone affected by sexual assault. Um, 1-800-RESPECT is a great free counselling and support service. Relationships Australia provides in-person counselling and online resources via their website and Reach Out has extensive online catalogues and resources as well as an anonymous chat and phone service. And it's not an extensive list by any means, but I wanted to mention it, especially after an episode like this. It was pretty heavy. Uh, I think when we did the two serial killers in a row, we were going to go a little lighter, but I think in a different kind of way, we've gone heavier again in the sense that, okay, nobody lost their lives, but these victims are obviously still got lives to live and they're going to have to live with this for the rest of, of that time. And these guys are still alive. And as we said, the majority of them are out. So it's a, it's a, Heavy in a different way, I think, really from an emotional point of view, I believe. Speaking of books, I did read a book in preparation for this as well, Chloe. It was by Cindy Wachner and Michael Porter, who was the uh, detective in the strike force that we mentioned a couple of times. It was called Evil in the Suburbs. Uh, It's not a book that's easily found, so I can't really recommend people to go and find it because... I went to great lengths to secure it. I believe it was, <laughs> I believe it was uh, removed from publication uh, a number of years ago. So you can find the odd one on eBay or, or something here or there, but it's not circulated widely. 
But there were a few online episodes covering different aspects of this story as well if anyone does want to see any of the people that we spoke about. Um, And just thank goodness for the police work in this case. I think we covered it but you can't say it enough that their thorough investigation and then the sentencing really at least hopefully made these victims feel like there was some justice and enabled them to start to move forward in their lives. Yeah. Let's get positive. We've got some five-star reviews this week, Chloe. Yes, we do. So we have two new reviews this week, one from a user called Old Mate. (laughs) Yeah. They said, I really enjoyed the podcast. It was well-researched and presented with a bit of good humour. Looking forward to the next one. The next one is from Claire LJ86. They said, loving this new Australian TC podcast, great storytelling and good interaction between the two hosts. So happy to have a new podcast to replace Fallon. That's a big call, but thank you very much. Very big call, but thank you. That's very kind. It is. Um, okay, so an extra happy we need to lift, lift, lift. Do you have a happy thought? I do, but I'm just going to gather that thought while you tell me yours. <laughs> <laughs> Cold bullshit. Okay, but I'll go first. So my happy thought is just that I'm feeling really good this week. I get anxiety and have been really anxious for the last four to six weeks, which is fine, but it can be really draining. Um, and I've really stuck to the boring things that you're meant to do like eating well, exercising, getting enough sleep, having a good routine. And it's just seems to have really leveled me out. Um, and after a patch where you feel a bit yuck, it's always nice when you all of a sudden realize that you don't feel that way again. So I'm just enjoying feeling pretty good at the moment. Yeah, that's Mm. great. Mm. Good to hear. Well, my happy thought is, uh, my, uh, brother and his partner had a little baby this week. So I'm an uncle again. Uh, which was very exciting. So hoping to be able to go and meet little Charlie. So in exciting. The, in the near future. Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, shout out to uh, to them and, yeah. Yeah, congratulations, very, guys. Yeah, very happy news. If you have any email suggestions, feedback or questions, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join in our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Podcast, or you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. Uh, if you're having trouble finding us on Patreon, there is a link for it in our Facebook group or the show notes for each episode. I just wanted to do a quick shout out to my wife, Amy, at the end here, Chloe. As I mentioned before we came on air, I managed to lose the last thousand words of this episode about the sentences uh, last night. So uh, a bit of a glitch in the matrix, I think, with syncing some documents. Uh, But she very kindly edited the episode for me while I retyped that thousand words. So thanks very much, Ames. What a legend. Thank you, Amy. (laughs) Thanks very much for listening, guys. We'll be back next week with another episode. Bye, everyone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.